Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, interestingly, what I thought would be kind of interesting, and, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to sharing this together, is we're going to be looking at a portion of Scripture that took place right after the events of Palm Sunday took place. So this is right after the, the things that are recorded related to happening during the day of Christ's triumphal entry. This is the next day. This is kind of the continuation of that story, and we're going to take a look at that today. And we're going to be talking about the fact that, that if we aren't spiritually fruitful, we're bound to grow resentful. Or the way we could phrase that if we're asking ourselves the question, would you like to live a fruitful or resentful life, because both options are presented for us in the portion of Scripture that we're about to look at. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We're going to be reading in just a moment from Mark 11, starting with verse 12, and I'm going to read for us down to verse 19 of the passage. Mark chapter 11, starting with verse 12, and this is what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany... He was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together and study it and to think about it today. Lord, we know that it's a privilege anytime where we have the opportunity to be able to spend some time together looking at what it contains. But Lord, today in particular, we pray that you'd speak your word to our hearts and our minds, that you'd help us to know what it means to be fruitful believers, that we wouldn't be individuals who who grow resentful because we've forgotten about the fruitfulness that you want to foster in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take from this passage today what you desire us to take and that we would glorify your name in the process, that our lives would bring you glory. And we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I, say, I think I say this a lot during the spring. I, 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 uh, I know I think it a lot during the spring, but spring is a time of year that I always look forward to. So today is a little bit of an anomaly in the sense that, you know, it looks a little bit dreary, dreary out today, but the past few days have been absolutely gorgeous. And like I even mentioned last week, when I become convinced that the snow is finished and the days are preparing to warm up, I immediately start to feel a sense of relief. It's kind of like relief that we've made it through another winter, maybe even partially a relief that my furnace is about to take a break. And I'm like, oh, furnace, rest up, rest up. Late October will be here again before you know it, but in the meantime, take your slumber, take your nap. I feel a sense of relief, me and the furnace. We feel a sense of relief collectively as friends. I love the way things look. I love the way things smell. I I love just being outdoors during this time of year. And I'll tell you what, and this is 
one of the nerdiest things that I do, and you have to hear me, hear me say this every year, and I apologize, I find a way to work it into a message one way or another, but I prepare for spring six months in advance. So how do I prepare for spring six months in advance? Well, I've learned that if I do a good job fertilizing my lawn in the fall, it, comes ba- it rushes back green in the spring, and it emerges nice and green. And what ends up happening is when it does that, when it gets that, that, that spring rush and it's all filled in nicely, it doesn't give the weeds the opportunity to germinate. And so I have a few extra mowings that I have to do in the spring, but really because the, the grass came back real lush and real healthy, I have less mowing that I have to do the rest of the year. So it takes some pre-planning, um, but you know, you fertilize it in the fall and then in the spring all of a sudden you have that beauty to enjoy. And sometimes I wonder why I care about things like that. And even in looking at your faces, you're like, oh, good, he's talking about his lawn again. I know, I know. But I mentioned it the other night during Bible study, and I'll, I'll just point Wendell out, and Wendell's like, yeah, I do the same exact thing. So, Wendell, sorry I had to call you out, but I have a comrade now. One of you also does this, so I, I know that I'm not alone. But making, making preparations for growth is obviously a practical concept when it comes to lawn care, right? It's a very practical concept, but it's actually something that the Lord cares about deeply in regard to our spiritual walk. He has given us every opportunity to grow. He has given us every opportunity to live a very fruitful spiritual life. And some people completely embrace the opportunity that He's given us. But many people reject that opportunity. And so we're kind of forced to wrestle with that. Am I going to embrace the opportunity to live a spiritually fruitful life, or am I going to reject that opportunity like many other people choose to do? And the portion of Scripture that we're looking at together this morning, it demonstrates a variety of things. But one of the things it certainly demonstrates is the importance of fruitfulness. But it also, I think, as I look at it, it shows us that if we're not going to be people who value fruitfulness in Christ, the other option is typically becoming resentful. And you can see a variety of people who have a very resentful attitude toward Christ. So we could become fruitful in Christ or resentful toward Christ. And obviously, growing resentful toward Christ is not an ideal state for anyone's heart to be in. Now, this passage that we just looked at from Mark chapter 11, this is a portion of Scripture that took place the day after Palm Sunday, the day after Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And there's a variety of things that I hope we take from this passage today that show us some of the things that Jesus was doing, some of the things that he had, came, that he had come to do. And one of the things that you're going to notice here right away, and I'll read these verses again for us, is first off, Jesus came to produce fruit in our lives. Now, let me read the portion of Scripture here that's making reference to this, or I believe illustrating this. But when you look at verses 12 through 14, I'm going to read it again for us. It says this, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So in some ways, I I, I almost wonder if we kind of wrestle with, uh, like, why is this here? Why is this story here? Well, I'll share a few thoughts in just a second. But one thing I notice is that it states the fact that Jesus was hungry. Now, once a week, many of you know that typically on Fridays, Andrea and I, that's date night. Friday night is date night. So we always try and find a local restaurant that we can go to and enjoy date night together. And we look forward to it. This Friday was different because we were hosting company. So we had to make date night on Saturday night. And I don't know why I didn't 
eat lunch yesterday, but for whatever reason, I didn't eat lunch. I had a few things I was working on, a few things I was doing, and by the time it dawned on me that I hadn't eaten yet today, I didn't eat breakfast either. So no breakfast, no lunch, and I'm like, um, I should plan my day a little bit better than this. And it was around 3 o'clock, and I knew I still had a few hours before we went to, to go out for date night, and I thought I should have eaten lunch, but now it's getting too close to dinner, and I don't want to ruin date night dinner. So I ate a few almonds, and I just kind of toughed it out, right? But when we went to the restaurant... I looked at the menu and I thought, would it seem obnoxious if I ordered two things? And uh, I didn't do that, but I came close because I thought, you know what? We're getting an appetizer and I'm getting the meal. And I got a nice open-faced turkey sandwich. It was delicious. It was so good. So good. And, uh, and Andrea got what she got and I finished my food and then she kept uh, trying to finish hers, but then kept scooping some onto my plate because she could tell that I was still hungry. And I think all of us can appreciate what it's like to just have a, a spot in time where you're just ridiculously hungry. So that's how I felt last evening. And so when I look at a portion of scripture like this, and it's starting off by telling us that Jesus was hungry, immediately he seems like my kind of guy. Because I understand that emotion, and I think a lot of times we can look at that and just think it's just like a statement that's like a whatever statement, but I want to share a few things with you that shows that is not just a whatever statement. There's a reason why things like this get referenced in the Scripture. Now, a little background here. Jesus had spent the previous evening in Bethany, and again, the Scripture tells us that he was hungry as he was leaving to head back to Jerusalem. Again, a lot of symbolism, I believe, in what takes place next, but just think for a moment again about the fact that it says that he was hungry. What is he trying to help us see by illustrating that here for us? Scripture is very clear that by nature, Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. He's not a created being. He is the creator. But when Jesus, who is God the Son, came to this earth, he did so for a purpose. He came to this earth to satisfy the just wrath of God the Father that was against our sin. Now, for Jesus to do that, what he would need to do is he would need to suffer the penalty for our sin on our behalf. And so the penalty for our sin was ultimately death. So he came to this earth to suffer death on behalf of sinners and then rise to life and then share that victory with all who would trust in him. And really, the only one that that could die as a fully innocent sacrifice on behalf of the sinful world was God himself. And so Jesus, who is God himself, the Son of God, came to this earth and took on flesh and became a man so that he could accomplish that. And a verse here, like what we're seeing in this portion of Scripture that reminds us that Jesus was hungry, I see deeper significance to that than just a statement of common fact. Hunger is a common thing to us, so we can overlook that and just not think too much about that. But I think one of the things that's being illustrated for us in that brief statement is the fact that in every way, Jesus had become human. Exactly what his mission was to do. He is 100% God, but he came to this earth and became 100% human at the same time. Theologians refer to that as the hypostatic union, how Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same exact time. And he took on flesh, and he experienced all our day-to-day struggles, including something like hunger. And yet in that, he never sinned. One of my favorite portions of Scripture related to that concept is found in Hebrews chapter 4. And let me show you what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. It says this of Jesus, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So isn't it interesting how Scripture makes a point to show us that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses, with all our weaknesses. He can sympathize with our weaknesses, including hunger. We have a merciful and sympathetic high priest, Jesus Christ. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And it says, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he experienced life like we experience life. He experienced weaknesses like we experience weaknesses, but yet did not give in to sin, which is the difference between him and us. We struggle with sin. He didn't struggle with sin. And so Hebrews 14, though, is still reminding us that he is sympathetic to what you and I go through. And so there's a reason we're told here of his hunger. We're being shown a picture that we can identify with. It's a picture of our very God, our very creator, who lovingly understands and compassionately understands everything that you and I go through on a day-to-day basis. Now, the scripture here tells us that Jesus saw a fig tree in the midst of that hunger. And he comes to inspect that fig tree. And the scripture also tells us that the fig tree was fruitless. So he's looking at this fruitless fig tree. He's staring at this fruitless fig tree. He's seeing something here. So what do you suppose this is? This could be serving a picture of for us? Many people wonder what the significance of this is, if it happens to have maybe like a deeper meaning or a deeper significance. Some theologians look at this and think that this gives a very fitting picture for the state of the nation of Israel at the time, meaning that they were nourished by God, but were fruitless in response. And I think that that's certainly possible, especially when you see that that's an analogy that's referenced multiple places in Scripture. But in a broader sense, I also think that it's fair to apply that same picture to us as well. If we're going to apply this to Israel, I think we should be applying this to us as well in this particular sense, meaning you have Jesus showing what's going on in his heart. What he, in the midst of his physical hunger, he desires to see fruit. Well, spiritually speaking, he desires to see fruit in your life and in my life as well. And I'm going to show you his own words on that in just a second. But Jesus desires to see fruit, not just from creation, but from those who are made a new creation in him. Now, I want to show you something from John chapter 15, verse 16. There Jesus said this. So think about this in regard to spiritual fruit that's supposed to come from your life and my life. But Jesus said this in John 15, 16. He said, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So think about the statements that Jesus is making there. He's saying, all right, you didn't, cho- you didn't choose me. I chose you and I chose you. I, I, I united you. I'm uniting you to me. I'm part of your life. I've given you new life with the idea that you live a fruitful life, that fruit comes from your life. And that fruit, the nature of the fact that you're, you're living a fruitful life in Christ is going to impact all sorts of things, including your prayer life. So the Lord wants us to be spiritually fruitful people. But that statement sounds all well and good. And I think sometimes we think, yeah, that sounds good. But what does that mean? What does that mean to be spiritually fruitful? So like on a practical level, if somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a spiritually fruitful believer in Christ? Let me give you a few examples of what I think Scripture teaches that that actually means. 
and what it looks like to have a spiritually fruitful life in Christ. First, I think one of the evidence of spiritual fruit that the Lord develops within us as our faith matures is we become motivated by the love of Jesus. Meaning, so, all right, let me even say it this way. There are things in my life that I do out of a sense of obligation. There are things that I do in my life out of a sense of duty or just just like valor, something I feel like I must do. Whether I feel like it or not, I must do it. But I think there's a greater motivation than obligation. And I think the greatest motivation is love. And I think that as our faith matures, we start to be motivated by the love of Christ, meaning we are motivated by His love to then love Him in return and to live our lives making decisions that are motivated and living our lives that, that are you know, just kind of covered by that umbrella of the love of Christ, that I make decisions each and every day conscious of the fact that I'm loved by Christ and I'm making those decisions as one who has the privilege to love Him back. And I'm displaying that love in how I treat other people and how I preach to myself and how I go about my day-to-day, my day-to-day life. I think being motivated by the love of Christ is one of the, the deepest forms of evidence of spiritual fruit taking place in the life of a believer. I think it's a greater motivation than a sense of obligation or duty. Something else that I think is uh, evidence of spiritual fruit is that over the course of our life, uh, we, as our faith grow, or as our faith grows, we have the privilege to delight in Christ. So what does it mean to delight in Christ? Well, think about what you daydream about any given day of your life. What do you daydream about? I daydream about many different things. I think I, day, I, I, think I dream more when I'm awake than I do when I'm asleep. And I'm not, I'm not even kidding about that. Like, I am a dreamer, right? And I think, all right, well, what do I daydream about? Well, if I'm delighting in Christ, my mind is eventually going to say, my heart and my deepest longings can be satisfied by Jesus. I don't need to go to anything that this world tries to supply me to try and find some sense of belonging or some sense of deepest satisfaction because the things of this world don't have the capacity to satisfy the deepest longings of my soul. But Christ does. And I have the privilege every single day to delight in Him. And in the moments that, from a worldly perspective, might feel lean, or even in the moments that might feel abundant from a worldly perspective, I can keep both of those things at bay, recognizing that my soul is ultimately only going to be satisfied by Jesus. If I have Jesus, I already have what I need most. I already have what I truly need. I can delight in Him. And I think that that's evidence of spiritual fruit in your life and in my life when we get to that spot where we delight in Christ. And I think fruit that comes from that is just a sense of being content in Him, realizing that, that, again, if we have Christ, we have everything we need. I think another evidence of spiritual fruit that the Lord desires to see from your life and my life is this idea of, of being prompted to extend mercy and grace to those that have no capacity to repay us anything. Extending mercy and grace to those that can't pay you back for it. Think about how Christ treated us. What did we have to offer Him that He couldn't have had already? We had nothing we could give him back. The only thing we could give him back for the mercy and, 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 uh, and grace that he's bestowed upon us is to just simply say, thank you. I didn't deserve that, so thank you. We had nothing we could tangibly give back to him. 
And so now we just live as a, as a living sacrifice, day by day, motivated by the love of Christ, realizing He extended His grace and His mercy toward undeserving sinners like us. And since we're motivated by His love and seeking to show spiritual fruit, that gives us opportunity to show mercy and grace to those who also have no capacity to repay us for it. We don't do what we do to get something back. We do it because Christ lives within us, and He's changed our perspective, and we're starting to think like He thinks. Scripture also tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and even more. And there's all sorts of fruit that the Lord brings forth from our lives. And Christ, as He's working within you and He's working within me, He desires to see that. He doesn't want us to be like like a fig tree with no fruit, giving the appearance of being a, a fruitful, rooted plant and then producing nothing of substance. I don't want to have a life that just produces nothing of substance. I don't want to slap the label Christian on myself and then say, all right, Lord, I slapped the label Christian on myself but never displayed the fruit that you empowered me to to display. He wants us to be fruitful. He empowers us to be fruitful through his spirit. And so here you have Jesus cursing that fig tree, and I think, I don't want to be like that fig tree. I like plants. I like spring. I like stuff growing. I want to be one who's growing in a constant state of growth until I see him face to face. And I think that's his desire for all of us. Something else that Jesus demonstrates in this portion of Scripture that I think is very interesting to observe, and it can kind of get us fired up a little bit too, I think, if we let it, is that Jesus came to confront the idols we worshipped. Look at what it tells us in verses 15, 16, and 17 of Mark 11. It says this, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple... And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So let's pause there for just a second. Thinking about the context of what was taking place here in in, in this particular context, it was nearly the time for the Passover feast. As you know, the Passover feast, it commemorates the time where the people of Israel, just prior to their exodus from Egypt, they were passed over for judgment. It was something that was to point toward what Christ, who is ultimately the Lamb of God, was going to fulfill on the behalf of all humanity. But you have the Passover feast coming up, you have preparations for Passover taking place, And uh, in the courts of the temple, as that was rapidly approaching, you have some dishonest money changing that's taking place, and you also have people who are greedily motivated to sell animals to those that have traveled. So typically what would happen is you would travel from a different area, and you would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. You would have your local currency, and you would exchange it with these money lenders so that you had Uh, currency that that was accepted right there in in that particular area, and then in their exchange rates, they would end up ripping you off. So you would come, step one, you get to the temple, you get ripped off. And then, to provide a convenience for you, they would sell animals there in the temple so that you didn't have to bring an animal with you to use for your sacrifices. You could just buy one once you got to the temple, but you pay for that convenience, right? So then they would overcharge, just like when we go into a convenience store now. You know, it's like, since when does a Snickers cost $4? It does when you want it that bad, you know? It's like, fine, I'll pay it. 
That's what they were doing. So imagine, imagine, you know, you have these pilgrims that are coming in from all sorts of areas to worship the Lord at the time of the Passover in Jerusalem. They come to the temple, they get ripped off on the money exchange, and then they get ripped off on the sale of an animal. And it's not good, and you have people just greedy to take money, not greedy or not, not excited to, to facilitate worship, just greedy to take money from those who had come. And this infuriated Jesus. And I think it's a good reminder to us, by the way, when we look at what it says here, that even though Christ is patient, he also holds the authority to judge. So keep that in mind when we think about Christ and, and, and the power that he has. And he looks at what's going on here, and he overturned the tables, and he overturned the benches. And so I, I'm picturing, you know, coins flying in the air, animals escaping. And it also tells us, and I, I have different theories in my mind of how I think this part looked, but it tells us that he also prevented others from carrying merchandise through the temple courts. So what was Jesus actively doing if he was preventing others from carrying merchandise into the temple courts? What was he doing? I, like, apparently, I'm guessing he was getting in their face and just saying, you're going to have to go through me if you try and do it. Just doesn't seem very mild in that moment, does he? You know, like, he's just, like, physically blocking people from bringing stuff into those temple courts. I don't know exactly how he was doing it. It just tells us that he got it done. And he's making a big stink of himself in this context here. And by the way, what's the big deal about you know, trying to prevent them from bringing you know, this merchandise into the temple courts? Well, keep in mind, you know, this is, these are areas where the Gentiles are allowed to come and worship and pray. And you have Jesus trying to protect this. You have Jesus trying to prevent them from turning it into a market. And what he does here is he reminds them that this was to be a place of prayer for all nations, not a place to defraud traveling pilgrims. You know, just imagine what a, a, a poor testimony this whole financial enterprise must have been to those who are observing. And they're seeing all these things taking place. This would make our God seem as if he had motives that were no better than some of the common tax collectors, the dishonest tax collectors that existed among the people at the time. And so Jesus, earlier in this portion of Scripture, he illustrated the lack of uh, external fruit when he curses that fig tree, but here he's confronting the inner state of the hearts of these individuals who are involved in all this activity. And, and by the way, let me even point out something else. Why do you suppose that among the animals that were being free, uh, depending on what translation you're using, pigeons or doves are given special attention here and mentioned? Why do you suppose that's mentioned? Why is that particular note given to us in Scripture? When you look at what Scripture tells us, it tells us that doves or pigeons were a sacrificial option for those who were poor and couldn't afford a more expensive kind of offering. And here you have people... So what they're doing is, imagine being somebody who's trying to be faithful in your act of worship, and you come to the temple, and the first thing is they rip you off on the money exchange, and then they rip you off on the sale of a pigeon or a dove. And you're already at a very lean season of life. Do you think that's going to put your heart in a spot of worship? What a terrible thing to do to somebody. In the temple? Scripture tells us in Leviticus 14, verses 21 and 22, some of the provisions that the Lord had made for those who are at a lean season of life financially. It says, but if he is poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waived, to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, and a log of oil, also two turtle doves, 
or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. The one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. And so with that in mind, I think it's interesting that that gets referenced here in Mark chapter 11, that, that Jesus is overturning the tables of the money changers. And, and it says, and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He's saying, you're ripping off poor people. You know, these are people that are poor. They don't have the finances to be ripped off. You shouldn't be ripping off anybody, but you certainly shouldn't be ripping off poor people as they've come here to worship. And instead of having compassion on the poor, what you have is these merchants selling these birds and, and robbing them. And, and by the way, just even consider the family that Jesus, when he took on flesh and he was born uh, you know, to, to Mary and to Joseph, consider the family that, that, he, that he was growing up in. You know, when he was being dedicated, what did they bring as the sacrifice? What did they bring as, that, as an offering? You know, Luke chapter, tw- uh, chapter 2, verse 24, it tells us, it says, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. In that portion of Scripture, that's where it shows us that that's what Joseph and Mary brought when they were dedicating Jesus. So what does that indicate about their financial state? They weren't well off. And so here you have Jesus being born among people that they're not well off. And then he goes into the temple and he sees people that should be aiding the poor, stealing from the poor. Tell me that wouldn't tick you off. Tell me that wouldn't be the type of thing that might even motivate you to just go flip a table. I think you would. I think some of you would. Or some of you would be like, hey, flip that table. I want to watch. (laughs) But unfortunately, there is nothing new under the sun. You know, not too long ago, I heard a a church uh, all excited, like they were fulfilling the Great Commission. And this is what they were all excited about. They were excited that all of their food sales were going super well, and their profit margins on the food sales were so, so good. And typically around Easter time, that's when they're selling a whole bunch of food and a whole bunch of candy and a whole bunch of things. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, didn't you ever read this portion of Scripture? You know, now, I'm not accusing this particular church that I have in mind of necessarily ripping people off. I'm sure the food was all very good. But I remember as I was hearing them talk about this, I thought, all right, I don't hear you excitedly sharing about sharing the gospel, but I do hear you excited about the profit margins you're, you're cleaning up on as you sell different food products to your community. I'm like, I think you're missing the point. You're more excited about the food sales than you are about people coming to know Christ. You may be missing the point of what the church is here to experience and to do. So as Jesus is doing all of this, and by the way, you know, why is he doing this? Like, why is he making such a stink? Why is he... Why is he becoming so visible in his activity of flipping these tables over, confronting people verbally, and then blocking people with his body from carrying things into those temple courts. Why is he doing this? It's now time for him to be crucified. So it's time to make that kind of stink. It's time to just become so unacceptable to the religious elite that they try and just ultimately end his life So you have the Scripture revealing to us that some were bothered by what Jesus was doing. And they're bothered. Why are they bothered? They're bothered because he's confronting their idols. They idolize their prestige and they idolize their money. And Jesus is confronting all of it when he does this. They weren't praying to the Lord. These were people that were praying on the disadvantaged. And their worship of money, it superseded their worship of the Lord, and it superseded their care of their fellow man. And you have Jesus confronting those idols 
And so I enjoy that, the, the way that passage plays out because I actually think he's trying to do that in your life and in my life as well because you know what happens? And I have to, I'll just confess this from my standpoint, and, and maybe this would be something you find applicable to your life as well. But even though I call myself a follower of Christ, I have noticed that at different times in my life, it's very easy for idols to sneak in. They get in there. And you know how you discern what an idol is? You start, all you have to do is just think, what do I soothe my mind with? What do I comfort myself with? What do I tell myself? If I just got this, then I'll be at rest. Or if this circumstance changed, then I can have peace. And if you can identify those things, and if they're anything other than Jesus, congratulations, you've just discovered an idol. It's like a game show. Discover your idols and then slay them, right? Get rid of them. And here you have Jesus confronting idols, and he does that as such a favor to us even now. But there's one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings up that I hope we'll notice and take great encouragement from. And we see this in verses 18 and 19 where it shows us that, that Jesus came to die for his enemies. And I'm going to show you what I, how I'm taking that from this passage or how, I, how it links to that by contrast. So look at what it says in verses 18 and 19 of Mark chapter 11 as we think about the fact that Jesus came to die for his enemies. It says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. So they're hearing about all the things Jesus is doing in the temple. It says, They heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So at this point, you have the religious big shots saying, all right, we've had enough of him. And I believe Jesus was intentionally provoking them here. And they're saying, all right, we've had enough of him. They didn't find this funny. They weren't sympathetic to Jesus' mission. They weren't sympathetic to Jesus' motives. And even though they presented themselves as righteous, their hearts were filled with idolatry and their hearts were filled with death. They wanted Jesus dead. In fact, the word that it uses here is they wanted to destroy Jesus. They wanted to destroy him. So we're not just talking about casually dead. We're talking about destroyed dead. That's what they wanted to do. By the way, again, in this vein of there's nothing new under the sun, I'll never forget when I was a brand new pastor. I was in my early 20s, and I was talking to a pastor who was a seasoned pastor who seemed like a little bit of a strange guy, and he confirmed to me that he absolutely was with a conversation that I had with him. And he said, oh, you're a new pastor. I bet you have all sorts of ideas and ambitions and things that you want to do. But he said, I'm just going to tell you now, your church isn't probably going to let you do a lot of those things. I was like, well, maybe if I work with them instead of against them, maybe we'll have cooperation. He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. He said, this is how I got it straight in my mind when I was in my 20s. And I was like, okay. And so I was listening. He said, it dawned on me. He's like, I'm in an earlier season of life than many of these people are, so I'm just going to wait them out and and just wait till they all die. He's He's like, you'll die before I will. You'll die before I will. You'll die before. And I'm like, are you rooting for the death of your congregation? That's a pretty demented way to lead people, wouldn't you say? Can I just promise you, I am not rooting for your death. Even if we disagree, I don't care what we disagree on. I am not rooting for your death. And I remember in that moment hearing him say that. I was like, this motivates your leadership? That's pretty crummy leadership. Mental note, listen to nothing that this man ever tells you. I promise you, I did not listen to this man's counsel after that. Oh, and by the way, he succeeded in killing that church. That church is also dead. So just so you know, there is a consequence to having that attitude. That church doesn't exist anymore. It was closed and sold, and that's it. It's all done. And here you have this, the religious leaders wanting to destroy Jesus. But still, the crowds, at this point, they're amazed 
at what Jesus taught. They were intensely interested in the things that Jesus was saying. Everybody's buzzing about him. They wanted to hear more. Many of them, keep in mind, had just publicly praised him the day before, laying down their coats in front of him as he came into Jerusalem, laying down palm branches in front of him as he came into Jerusalem. They wondered if he was the Christ. They wondered if he was the Messiah. They wondered if he was the one who would rule and reign on the throne of David. But unfortunately, many of the people who had praised him just one day before would, in just a few days, also be joining these leaders in calling for Jesus to be crucified. Their minds and their fickle hearts were going to change. And I can only imagine some of the conversations that must have been taking place behind closed doors when this was all taking place. They were wondering, these leaders were wondering, how they could successfully kill Jesus without turning the crowds against them. They wanted to know, how can we persuade the crowds to join us and not turn against us? But either way, we've got to figure out a way to destroy him. They wanted to know if there was some way that maybe they could discredit Jesus or take some of his shine away so that the people would join them in their disdain for Christ. Years ago, I heard a a very disturbing story about a professor at a college in Florida. And he looked at his students and he said, this is what I want you guys to do. I want you guys to take a piece of paper and I want you to write the name Jesus on it. So they wrote the name Jesus on it. And he said, now I want you to fold that piece of paper. Then they folded the piece of paper. And he said, now I want you to throw it onto the ground. And they threw it on the ground. He said, now I want you to step on it and smear it into the ground. And, And what he was doing was trying to give an object lesson to that class of his disdain for Christ. And he invited a classroom of students that were trusting his leadership and influence he wanted them to join him in that disdain. And when I, when I look at that, when I think about that, I think it's just what you see these religious leaders doing. They wanted the crowds to go from marveling at Jesus to joining them in their disdain for Jesus. But keep something in mind. What they didn't understand was that their plots to kill him weren't going to be effective because Jesus had actually come to die for his enemies. So here you have his people that had set themselves as his enemies trying to kill him, not realizing that that's exactly what Jesus had come to do. He's instigating this. And he, he's, you know, he's, it's basically getting them to a spot of mental preparedness to do what they've already purposed in their heart to do. It's like take action on what you've already purposed in your heart to do. But Jesus came to die for his enemies. I love what it tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, and Jesus understood this was the right time, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So again, what did Jesus come to do? He came to die for his enemies. He came to to die for his enemies and then make them his family. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus didn't come to rescue us because we loved him. He came to rescue us because we didn't love him. The leaders sought to kill their enemies. Jesus came to suffer and die for his. It's a very big difference. Let me say this as we finish up. In Christ, we're given the privilege to live a very fruitful life. But many people choose a bitter and resentful path instead. But still, keep in mind, Christ came to make the dead alive, and then as He makes the dead alive, He seeks to give us 
life that is abundantly fruitful in him. And so this is a week where we have the opportunity to make some mental and spiritual preparation as we prepare our hearts to celebrate and commemorate the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. So with the events that took place in this portion of Scripture in mind, I'd like to invite us to do something today, tomorrow, all throughout the course of this week as we prepare to commemorate the fulfillment of what Christ had come to do. And that's this. Ask yourself the question, can you see the fruitfulness of Christ that he's producing within you? Can you see the fruit that he's trying to produce in your heart and in your life? Do you see it? In, can, you, can you understand it in your mind, and do you see it coming out of your life? And as we prepare our hearts to commemorate the crucifixion and celebrate the resurrection, this is a week that I think is useful for us to reflect on the fruitfulness of Christ that he desires to see coming from us, because we can go one of, of two directions. It's either fruitfulness from Christ or resentfulness toward Christ. And obviously his desire for you and for me is a life of spiritual fruit facilitated and prompted through him, through his spirit, as he does his work through you and through me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to look at your word this morning and to think about the things that you've communicated to us in it. Lord, we're grateful for your goodness, and we're grateful for the fact that when you came to this earth, you came to make the dead alive. You didn't just come to this earth to hang out for a little while. You came to this earth to accomplish a mission with a purpose. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the redemption of humanity that you facilitated. We know, Lord, that we have the privilege to be recipients of the gift of your salvation as so we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. And so we pray that as we do so, that we wouldn't be like fig trees with no figs. We pray that we would be men and women who display the fruit of your Son being our Lord, the fruit of your Spirit living within us. Lord, we're grateful for these reminders, and we're grateful to be able to look at a portion of Scripture that shows us some challenging things, even about the idea of just some of the idols that sometimes we worship being confronted. Lord, I, I have had my idols, and I still have things that like to creep into my mind or creep into my life, and I pray that I would submit those things over to you and give them no sway over my life. And Lord, I pray that that would be the same for each of us, that we would give no sway to our idols, but that we would find ultimate delight and ultimate contentment in your Son, Jesus Christ, and again, Father, we pray that we would see fruit from that relationship day after day after day as our, as our faith deepens, as it grows, and as we mature. So, Lord, thank you for these reminders from your word, and thank you for your presence with us now. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.